Turn with me this morning to Hebrews chapter 3 as we continue our wonderful journey through this great letter. Each of us has memories from our childhood that are etched into our minds and can come quickly rushing to mind again at simply the mention of a word or a catchphrase. It might be a memory of a family tradition or a family favorite meal or a favorite television program. In my family, we grew up watching the Andy Griffith show. It was a staple. The humor from that show still finds its way into almost every conversation that I have with my parents. My wife didn't grow up with that show, and so now she just automatically assumes that if we're with my family and we burst into laughter unexpectedly, someone said something from the Andy Griffith Show. I think it's because that show is such a part of my DNA that in my preparation for this morning, one particular episode from the Andy Griffith Show came rushing to mind. On one occasion, Andy Taylor made the mistake of telling his son, Opie, that he really didn't need to worry that much about his history class. Opie took Andy's words to heart, and he and his friends stopped doing all of their history homework, and they responded obstinately to the teacher when she confronted them about the issue. After a stern talking to from Opie's teacher, Ms. Crump, Andy realized his mistake, and he began to brainstorm how he could solve this predicament he had placed himself in. So he gathered the boys together and he told them the story of Paul Revere, of the Minutemen, and of the shot heard around the world. And once he was finished, he made an ingenious suggestion that no little boy could resist. He encouraged them to start a club, a history club, called the Mayberry Minutemen, always ready with the answer. His suggestion was so powerful that even Barney wanted to join the club. And his ingenious plan was so effective that the boys went from obstinate refusal to do their history homework to being the most well-read and prepared students in the class. You know, that fun, simple episode is a reminder of a much deeper reality, which is the fact that human beings in general thrive in the context of community with one another. And the most sacred example of that, of course, is not a club, but the church of Jesus Christ. It's far more special and sacred than any club could ever be because this group of people called the church is, in fact, the collection of redeemed saints, not because they've paid their dues, not because they've signed a commitment card, but because of the very blood of Jesus Christ. The church is so sacred, in fact, that the Bible refers to the church with illustrations such as the body of Christ and the bride of Christ. And while human beings in general uh, typically thrive in the context of community, Christians are actually commanded by God to live their lives in the community of believers in the local church. Jesus, in fact, intentionally designed the life of a Christian to be lived out in the context of the local church. And that commitment and necessity comes rushing into view in our text today in Hebrews chapter 3. What we're going to find is that the fellowship of the local church is a crucial component of fighting against a hard heart. You'll remember the theme of Hebrews is the superiority of Christ. It's on every page We are coming out of a section, we're applying a section in this letter that taught us that we're to consider Jesus because he's been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. We're looking at chapter 3, verse 7 through chapter 4, verse 13. Let's read our text 
together. We're going to read Hebrews 3, beginning in verse 7 down through verse 13, which is our text for today. Therefore, just as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me, as in the day of trial in the wilderness, where your fathers tried me by testing me and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was angry with this generation and said, they always go astray in their heart and they did not know my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brethren, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. But encourage one another day after day, as long as it is still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. This entire section really teaches us one key truth, and that is as Christians, we are to be on guard against hard-hearted unbelief towards Christ. We're in the second warning section of this letter, beware of a hard, of hard-hearted unbelief. And you'll remember there in our text in verses 7 to 11, he begins by expositing Psalm 95, reminding us of the wilderness generation and their failure to respond to Moses appropriately. He's teaching us that if the wilderness generation suffered the judgment of God because of their rejection of Moses, how much more shall we be on guard against rejecting the Lord Jesus Christ? And he gives us four tactics for guarding against a hardened heart. We saw tactic number one, remember the past, In verses 7 through 11 from Psalm 95, you'll remember that we saw the people rebel against God in two primary ways. They questioned God's ability and they questioned God's character, his power, his ability to provide for them, and his willingness, his character in his provision for them. That sinful, hard-hearted response led to the judgment of God that they would not enter his rest. They would not enter the promised land. Then last week, we saw tactic number two, where the spotlight turned from the wilderness generation to you and me, and tactic number two is examine your heart in verse 12. There, the author commanded us, commanded each one of us to take care or be watchful, beware, be on guard against hard-heartedness. And remember, that was a command given to the church. And so we had to talk about the issue of apostasy. How is it that someone can profess to know Christ and then walk away from the church? I'm not going to go back through all of that this morning, but I would encourage you to go and listen to that if you missed last week because it really provides a foundation for much of the things we will study in the book of Hebrews. But last week, we focused on the the individual application of that command. This week, we're going to focus on the corporate application of this command because this command to take care or be watchful is not just for us individually and it's not just for the professing believer who's not really in Christ. It's for true believers in the church. We as a church have to take seriously the command to be on guard and be watchful over our hearts. And so that brings us to our text today in verse 13 and tactic number three, encourage the church. Encourage the church. Look back at verse 13. The author begins, but encourage one another. Encourage one another. That word encourage there is a command. 
It's in the exact same form as the previous command to take care. So now we have two commands together. We are to take care that our hearts are not led astray and we must encourage one another in the local church. The word encourage literally means to urge strongly, to urge strongly. And so we could uh, translate this as appeal to, urge, exhort, or as we have it here, encourage. And it's also a present active command, just like take care, the, the command encourage is an ongoing action. It's a description of the daily life of a Christian. Encourage one another. And notice specifically those words, one another. This is a command, again, to the church. We're to be encouraging each other in the context of the local body of believers. Remember, in verse 12, he referred to this group who's receiving this command as brethren, Christians, and now he says, one another. The encouragement here paints a picture of the relationships within the local church. We, here at North Lake Bible Church, are to take seriously this command to encourage one another. It is, in fact, one of the tactics for guarding against a hardened heart of unbelief. When you commit yourself to a local body of believers, you're committing to take a vested interest in the spiritual lives of the other Christians involved in that local body. We are to come alongside other believers in the church to urge them strongly towards a soft heart of faith. This kind of encouragement is part of the ministry of edification, of building up one another in the truth. We are to be proactively building up one another, spiritually speaking. That indicates we're to come alongside one another to encourage the process of sanctification. Now, obviously, we don't have the power to sanctify anyone. We can't sanctify ourselves. God does the work of sanctification. But we are to come alongside one another lovingly, but truly and regularly encouraging each other towards faith and obedience to the truth. In addition to that, the insinuation is that we're to allow others to do the same for us, to come alongside and to encourage us in obedience to the truth. This is actually what Christian fellowship is. Christian fellowship is not simply having coffee and donuts together, though I'm not against that. Coffee and donuts are a gift from the Lord. But over coffee and donuts... Christian fellowship happens when we encourage one another in the faith, when we spur one another on to love and good deeds. It's a firm commitment to a shared life together. That's really what fellowship is. It's sharing our lives together on purpose, living life closely with other believers that we might proactively encourage spiritual growth in one another. We see this all over the New Testament. We see it in places like 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 11. Therefore, encourage one another and build up one another just as you also are doing. We see it in Ephesians 4.29. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification. That is, building up according to the need of the moment so that it will give grace to those who hear. This is a reminder, by the way, that though the doctrine of the preservation of the saints is undeniably true... God accomplishes that reality through the use of means. Let me explain what I mean by that. God has promised, an undeniable promise, that not one single genuine believer will be lost. He will bring them all home to himself. 
In fact, in John chapter 10, verses 27 to 30, he says, the Father holds us in his hand and no one can take us out of his hand. That is an undeniable promise. But one of the ways that God has chosen in his sovereignty to accomplish that promise is through the close-knit fellowship of the local church in which we're committed to encouraging one another in the truth. That is part of the means that God uses to help us continue in the faith. It's through relationships in the local church. That's why it evidences an extreme lack of understanding of the importance and the centrality of the local church when a person claims that they don't need to go to church because they're perfectly fine just having a personal relationship with Jesus. God has designed the Christian life on purpose to be lived in and amongst other Christians. In short, we need each other. We need each other to to help us stay faithful in following Christ. We, We need to be equally committed to proactively encouraging other Christians in the truth and humbly allowing them to encourage us when our when our faith is weak. And through this mutual commitment that we call Christian fellowship, the church is built up and kept safe from the dangers of a hard, unbelieving heart. Now, if you think I'm overstating the case on just how central this should be in the life of each local church, just listen to the frequency with which the author says we're to do this. Look back at verse 13. But encourage one another day after day. Day after day. Literally, the Greek text says each day. Encourage one another each day. Literally, we're being commanded here to be intentional and proactive in encouraging other members of the local church in which we are involved every single day. That's the frequency of this command, but he also adds the duration. How long are we to keep that up? I mean, you might be tempted to think perhaps the the Christians here that are receiving this letter are going through some immense trial, and so for a short period of defined time, they need to daily be encouraging one another. But that's not what the author is saying. Look back at the duration of this frequency, verse 13. But encourage one another day after day as long as it is still called today. What is he saying? He's saying that this is to be the ongoing reality of the church every day until the Lord brings us home. In fact, he's playing off of the way the word today is used in Psalm 95, the text that he quoted earlier. You look back at verse 7. Therefore, just as the Holy Spirit says, today if you hear his voice. He's pulling that word today out of Psalm 95 to say that it's still relevant. The word today, what it meant then when the author wrote it in the time of David, it still meant when the author wrote it here in Hebrews, and it still means it today as we read it. Today means today. How long will the word today mean today? For all of human history. Until the Lord comes and sets up his kingdom, today will mean today. And so what the author is saying very simply, he's saying, I want you to commit yourselves, Christians, to encouraging one another in this local body, and I want you to do it every day, and I want you to keep doing it every day until the Lord brings you home. That's Christian fellowship. 
That's the, the life that we're to live in the church, in this local church. So let me ask you, if you're a Christian this morning and you consider this to be your church home, when's the last time that you encouraged another member of this church in their spiritual walk with the Lord? When's the last time you prayed specifically by name for another member of this church? When's the last time you sent an encouraging text, an encouraging letter, made an encouraging phone call because you knew another member of the church was going through a difficult time and you wanted them to know they were prayed for? When's the last time you memorized scripture with another believer to help encourage each other to be meditating on the truth? When's the last time you confessed sin to another Christian and asked them to come alongside you and to hold you accountable so that you don't fall into that sin in the future? When's the last time you opened your home to another family in the church to to share your resources with them for the purpose of building a bridge to get to know them and encourage them in the faith? More simply, when's the last time you stayed after church just to talk with people, to get past the routine, how was your day and hasn't it been exceptionally hot this summer into how are you really doing? How can I pray for you? You see, we have to be on guard against a consumeristic mindset when we think about the local church. So many people are tempted to come to church only looking for what they can get out of it. Now, don't get me wrong. We are all personally edified and built up by the teaching of God's word, by fellowship. I'm encouraged. I'm built up. I'm on cloud nine every Sunday after spending time with you. We all benefit personally from being with other believers and hearing the word of God taught. But this text is reminding us that the mentality that we're to have when we come to church is not what's in it for me, but how can I glorify God and edify his people? You see, when when we come to church primarily for our own benefit, we leave thinking things like this. Well, no one spoke to me today. I'm sure they probably didn't even notice I was there. Of course, no one invited me to lunch. I see other people obviously pairing up and going off to lunch, but not me. I guess I'll go home and warm up some three-day-old leftovers. But when you come to church with a biblical mindset, you come prayed up, anticipating being a blessing to someone else. And you come seeking out conversations with other people, not waiting for them to come to you. You come involving yourself intentionally in the lives of others. And you don't wait for an invitation to come for lunch at the end of the service. If you desire to go to lunch and fellowship with another Christian, you make an invitation. And on Monday morning after church, you don't stare at your phone all day wishing that someone would reach out and contact you and why does no one ever text me, but you pick up the phone and you call someone and you text someone and you pray for someone. And this is how it happens when we get out of ourselves and we start looking at each other and how we can be an encouragement, the body is cared for. Somebody begins praying for you and is encouraging you and you're encouraging others and others are encouraging others and the body is cared for as a group. Understand, this is not a command for each of us to feel the weight of every single individual in the local church. That's impossible. None of us have the capacity. I don't have the capacity to come alongside every single person every day and encourage them personally. But if we as a group commit that we will take on the responsibility of encouraging someone today, then over the course of time, the church is cared for, the church is encouraged, the church is built up 
in the faith. You know, this kind of intimate daily Christian fellowship was immediately the response of the the new believers after the day of Pentecost. It just organically happened that the church began to act this way. Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 42. Speaking of those who came to Christ after Pentecost, they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. They began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. Day by day, listen to that, day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. Understand that this kind of fellowship, this kind of community is what happens in a local church that's serious about studying and living out the word of God. It just begins to organically happen. In fact, one of the telltale signs, the Bible says, that a person has come to genuine faith is they suddenly want to be with other believers because they love them and they want to serve them. This is what the Apostle John tells us in 1 John chapter 3. He says, we know that we have passed out of death into life. That is, we know we're saved because we love the brethren. He who does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. We know love by this that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and truth. And so we as believers are to genuinely love one another as an overflow of the love that's been extended to us by Christ. And that will create a robust fellowship in which we serve and encourage one another. Understand that this kind of regular, daily fellowship is not simply because we're relational beings who like to be with other people. The author now reveals that this kind of daily encouragement is essential for guarding against a hard heart. And this reveals the urgency of the command, and it gives us a clue as to how we practically come alongside each other in encouragement. Look back at the text in verse 13. But encourage one another day after day, so long as it is still called today, so that. Those words should cause you to to pay attention. There's a purpose here. There's a reason. Why? So that none of you will be hardened. So that none of you. Notice that, again, the emphasis, none of you Christians in the church do this so that none of you will be hardened. Our daily encouragement of one another in this local church is crucial because it's one of the primary means that God uses to preserve the church. It's the ministry of the word through the people of God to each other. The Holy Spirit works in and through the word and through his people as we remind each other of the truth, call each other back to the truth. What that means then is to neglect real fellowship in the local church is to leave yourself vulnerable to a hardened heart. 
Through the means of encouraging one another in the truth, we help each other persevere in humble faith in God and trust in the scriptures and walking in a commitment to obedience to the truth. This kind of fellowship keeps a hardened heart at bay. Every true Christian must understand that temptation towards a hard heart will be a part of the Christian life. Don't be surprised by that. We too, as believers, are are, are those who need this urgent warning to guard against a hard heart. The fact that we have confidence in God's promise to keep us faithful to the end is no excuse for laziness when it comes to shepherding our hearts. While true believers can never lose their salvation or completely abandon the faith, they can fall into seasons of sin and have their spiritual growth stunted because of lack of diligence to guard their hearts against hardness and unbelief. And when that happens, they fail to progress in spiritual maturity at the pace that God intends. This actually, in chapter 5 of Hebrews, is something that the author is going to bring to the attention of these readers. Listen to Hebrews chapter 5. He says, Concerning him we have much to say, and it's hard to explain, since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God, and you've come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, for he's an infant. But solid food is for the mature, who because of practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil. You see what he's saying? He's like, listen, I have a lot that I want to say to you, but, but it's going to be difficult because you are not listening. You've become dull of hearing because of a lack of diligence over your own heart. Understand that the difference, and this is crucial, the difference in the hardening of the heart of the apostate and the partial hardening of the heart that can happen in a true believer is this. The apostate ultimately hardens his heart completely against Christ and the gospel and completely rejects the truth and walks away. The true believer continually holds fast to the gospel and to Christ, but will struggle with temptation towards hardening his heart in specific situations by choosing to give in to his sinful lust instead of trusting and obeying the word of God on that issue. That's what happens, honestly, every time you sin as a Christian. You're choosing in that moment to harden your heart against the truth of God and to choose to follow after a lie. You're choosing that sin and the desire for that sin over love for Christ and the word. And that's an evidence of a a hardening of your heart in that moment. Not Not a total hardening of your heart, but a closing off of your ears to God on that particular issue at that particular moment. Now understand the true believer will not stay in that condition because God won't allow it. The Holy Spirit will convict them of sin, even discipline them. That's why even we have the gift of church discipline to come alongside and to call people back to true repentance. But that doesn't negate the fact that all of us are engaged in a daily battle and we must be diligent to oversee our hearts and encourage one another to do the same. Now all of this does raise an important question. How does temptation towards hard-heartedness happen? 
how does this happen? Because I'm sure you, like me, if you're in Christ, say, I, I don't want to harden my heart. I don't want to harden my heart against the Lord. So help me understand, how does that happen? Well, the author tells us. The author now turns our attention to the culprit behind hard-heartedness. Look at verse 13 again. So that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. By the deceitfulness of sin. Notice that he doesn't simply say by sin. Instead, he says by the deceitfulness of sin. Now, that is very instructive for us as we prepare to fight for our hearts and encourage one another to do the same because it informs us in regards to this danger that we're to be fighting against. You see, when we think of sin, we often simply think of lists of things we're not to do and things we're commanded to do in the Scripture. We think sort of black and white, don't do this and do pursue this. And so our battle against sin then becomes targeted at the outward level of don't do that, don't say that, do this instead. And of course, that's true. We can point to lists in the scripture of things we shouldn't do and lists of commands of things we should do. So I'm not saying that's not true. But what the author's getting at here with this phrase, the deceitfulness of sin, is that sin is far deadlier than just an external list of do's and don'ts. Because sin comes with a complete package of deception designed to take root in your mind so that over time you're convinced that committing that sinful action would be actually be right and even necessary in your situation. That's why sin's so dangerous and why the battle for our hearts demands that we become astute, not just at knowing the list of do's and don'ts, but astute at understanding the enemy's tactics and schemes of deception designed to, to trick us into thinking that what is, is evil is good and what is good is evil. Let me see if I can illustrate how this happens this way. If you've ever played a musical instrument of any kind, then you know that there is a standard tuning. 440 is the frequency that's agreed upon across the world so that musicians from any in the world, anywhere in the world can get together and play in tune with one another because of this agreed standard tuning. But if you've ever played a guitar or another stringed instrument, then you may know that though your guitar may go out of tune with 440, the standard tuning, if you know how to tune it, you can actually tune your guitar to itself so that it actually sounds beautiful. You would think, if you have an untrained ear, that that guitar is actually in tune because you've tuned it to itself. Each of the strings are equally out of tune with the standard, and because they're equally out of tune, together they sound in tune. And so someone could play for you, and you'd say, well, doesn't that sound wonderful? Until the piano comes in, which is tuned to 440, and everyone would say, oh, that guitar is out of tune. That's how the deception of sin works. You see, when we are tempted towards sin, the world, the flesh, and the devil masterfully present to us a, a false reality. Not just a, an action, but an alternate tuning. And if you step into that world, if you believe the first lie and walk into that room, everything in the room seems to go together. All of the lies connect. It's like playing that guitar that's tuned to itself and you're blissfully thinking, this is great. It sounds beautiful because you've given in to the lie so that that deception actually seems good and even logical. 
It's not until you take that deception and place it against the standard of truth in God's word that you see, wait a minute, this is out of step. That's why sin is so deceptive. It's not just a matter of do this and don't do this. Honestly, that kind of temptation, though that happens on occasion, a sinful act may just be placed in front of you as a a temptation out of the blue. I think you would admit with me that's typically a lot easier to resist than this world of deception. A simple instance of temptation is much easier to resist than something like this. Let's look at two examples in Scripture of how the deception of sin actually plays out in real life. The first one, of course, we have to go to the garden. The first sin of human beings shows us how this deception works. Genesis chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? The woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat. But from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God said, You shall not eat from it or touch it or you will die. The serpent said to the woman, You surely will not die. For God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate, and she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. Now let's think about this for just a moment. Again, oftentimes when we think about temptation, we think about these little things dropped in front of us that we have to say no to. We think about the fruit on the tree, and that does happen. But notice that Satan does not begin by picking fruit from that tree and saying, Eve, try this. He doesn't do that. Instead, he begins with the calculated questioning of God's words. In fact, if you think about it, at no point in this scene does Satan ever directly suggest that the woman should eat the fruit. Instead, he spends the entirety of his time weaving a deceptive way of thinking, offering to her a different point of view. And when she takes the bait on that lie, that deceptive point of view, she begins to think that would be a good thing. Eating that fruit would be good. You see, sin doesn't typically begin with, hey, try this. Instead, it begins with, hey, think about it this way. Think about it this way. That's how sin came into the world. But what we find is that this continues to be the enemy's tactic, and it works. Because it will still be the enemy's tactic through the the sinful ministry of the Antichrist. We see this in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Listen to this. It says, Then that lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth, and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. That is the one whose coming is in accord with the activity of Satan, with all power and signs and false wonders. This is the Antichrist. Verse 10. And with all the deception of wickedness for those who perish. Notice that. The deception, not just wickedness, but the deception of wickedness for those who perish. Because, why do they perish? They did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. You see. 
The Antichrist and his sinful ministry, if you will, will be successful because he's going to be a master at giving out this deception of wickedness, and it will be so successful because people will deny the truth. They will refuse to take the truth and put it up against that lie and say, this is the truth, I will do that. That's why it will be so effective. Now, that's instructive for us this morning as we think about applying this text to ourselves and understanding what the author means by the deceitfulness of sin. It's instructive because it reminds us that the battle for our hearts always begins with a commitment to truth. Let me say that again. The battle for your heart always begins with a commitment to believe the truth. Now, of course, that begins with a commitment to believe the gospel. That is the gateway. It's the entry point. And so if you're here this morning and you're not a believer, you first, before you do anything else, have to come to the point where you align your thinking with the truth of Scripture in this regard, that you understand that you are a sinner that has rebelled against a holy God, and that sin makes you guilty before God, deserving his penalty of death, eternal death and hell. But the Bible reveals that God is merciful, he's loving and kind. And he sent his perfect son, Jesus Christ, to live the perfect life that you and I failed to live. And Jesus Christ offered that life on the cross as a sacrifice to pay for sin. And the Bible says on the third day, God raised him from the dead, proving that God had accepted his sacrifice and that Jesus really was the son of God and everything he said was true. The Bible says if you will repent of your sins, turning from your sins to Jesus Christ in faith, believing that he is your only hope of salvation, you will be saved from God's wrath over your sin. You first have to be willing to humble yourself and believe that truth up against any lie that the world would throw at you instead, any alternate way into a right relationship with God. But understand, Christian, it doesn't stop there. It includes all things that Christ has commanded us. And so if we as believers are to maintain a soft heart of faith, we have to fight against the lies of the flesh, the world, and the enemy with the truth of God's word. Constantly bringing it back to that standard to say, though this on its own seems so logical and even good and necessary, when I put it in the light of the standard of God's word, it doesn't match up, and so I cast it away. That's how we have to guard our hearts. You know, we talk often about the process of change in the scriptures, how a Christian grows in their faith. The process of change comes from Ephesians 4 and Colossians chapter 3. And it's simply this. We are to put off sin. A temptation comes. We put off that temptation towards sin. We renew our minds with the truth of scripture. And then we put on righteousness. We choose to obey that truth. We do that over and over again all throughout the day. We put off, renew our minds, and put on. But you have to understand that we're, we have to apply that process of change not just to activities that we should or shouldn't do. We have to apply it to this process of recognizing lies and deceptions and putting off those lies, renewing our mind with the truth, and then walking in accordance with that truth. It's not just activities, don't do this, don't do that. It's don't believe that, don't think that way, because it's not the way that God has said we should think. We're constantly bringing our mind and our thinking back to the truth. A hard heart begins when we give in to the temptation to believe a lie rather than the truth. Let me give you some examples of how this can happen in real life. The liar 
has believed that the best outcome in his situation will not happen if he tells the truth. So he chooses to tell a lie. Think of it this way. If I said to you, Here, here's the temptation. Let's say, let's say I'm your flesh and I'm tempting you. And your flesh says, this week, I'm going to tempt you to lie to your boss. You'd say, no, I wouldn't do that. I'm not, I, wouldn't, I know that doesn't honor the Lord. I'm not going to lie to my boss. But what if it comes at you this way? You're working at your desk and your boss walks by casually and pops his head into your office and says, hey, did you send that email? And immediately you remember that next week you're going to be sitting for, for an interview for a promotion. It's a promotion you've been waiting for for months. It's a promotion your family honestly could really, really use. The financial gain would be a huge help for your family at this moment. And you realize I've actually written the email, but it's in my drafts because I was going to read it one more time before I send it. I mean, basically it says sent as an unsent email can be. And if I don't say yes... I'm not going to get that promotion. And so, yes, sir, I send it. You see the difference. You believe the lie. Ultimately, the lie that you would believe in that moment is that disobedience in this instance is going to be more beneficial for me than obedience. And what that reveals is a misunderstanding of the fact that God in his providence has called you simply to obey and allow him to weave together your life story. And we, we tend to want to take the reins and do those things ourselves. This happens in every area of life. The adulterer has believed that the difficulties in his marriage relationship have become more than any person could bear. And so adultery is not only permissible, but understandable. After all, God wants me to be happy, right? And I'm not happy. And so God actually would be pleased if I go and do this thing. You believe the lie, it leads to the act. The angry person has believed that the unjust actions of others have made his or her anger understandable and even justifiable. Who wouldn't be angry if someone said this to them? And of course, it's right that I respond. The discontent person has believed that he has been given something less than he needs or deserves. And so because of his difficult circumstance, he feels justified in his discontentment. You see how this pattern continues. It's presented as a package of lies. If you give in to the package of lies, you'll find yourself committing the sins that go with that deception. Now, this clarifies not only how we're to guard our own hearts, but how we're to encourage one another in the body. Encourage one another. If we're to be encouraging one another so that we're not hardened by the deceitfulness of sin, then that means our ministry of encouragement consists of this. We're talking to another believer and they're confessing that they're struggling with something. What we're doing is trying to help them identify the lies that they're being tempted to believe and then helping them identify the truth of God's word and then the truth of God's word will, will make the pathway clear as to how they should respond. And we do that over and over and over again. In fact, this is actually how Paul describes life in the body. The point of the church is this, Ephesians 4, 14 to 16. He talks first of all about giving leaders to the church who teach the word and equip the saints for the work of ministry. And then here's the result of that, verse 14. As a result, we're no longer to be children 
tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. That's a really long way of saying we're not to be deceived by the deceitfulness of sin. Instead, verse 15, but speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is head, even Christ. We speak the truth in love to one another, to our own hearts. We preach to ourselves instead of listening to ourselves. And through that ministry of the truth of God's word, the lies of the enemy and the flesh are revealed for what they are, and we walk in the truth. That's our daily responsibility as believers. Now understand, just as a side note, that this is a command that insinuates, again, a close-knit life of fellowship in the church. And so this is not a command to be what I'll call an encouragement sniper. An encouragement sniper sits in their chair far removed from the other believers but just looks around for things that look suspiciously sinful. And when they spot one, they make a beeline to that person to confront them about what they've seen from across the room. This is not the encouragement that the author is encouraging. This is, no, let's live life together. Let's, let's know each other. I'm going to share with you, you share with me, pray for me in this. I'm praying for you in that. Oh, brother, I, I see how tempting that is. But, but remember, God's word says this and not that. Oh, thank you. That helps re reorient me in the way I should think. And it shows me how I should walk. This is the life in the body that is being encouraged here. And so the application here is pretty straightforward. If you want to apply this text, encourage one another in the truth. Encourage one another in the truth. If you're a Christian and you consider North Lake Bible Church to be your church home, then commit yourself to building deep relationships with the people in this church for the purpose of mutual edification. Answer this question. If the Lord were to take you home unexpectedly this afternoon, who would be grieving the loss of your encouragement in this church? Who have you encouraged this week? Who's on your prayer list from this church? If the answer is, I, I have to confess, I don't think anyone would miss my encouragement because it hasn't been present. Friend, that can change today. Just hang around after the service. Just pick someone. Go talk to them. Ask them how you can pray and pray. And follow up later. How's it going? I prayed for that. How did it go? Share with them how they can pray for you. You can start this today. I encourage you to join a small group in our church. We created small groups as a ministry to help facilitate this kind of relationship, of fellowshipping in the truth together, holding each other accountable. Take advantage of that ministry if you haven't done that. Fill your life with the people in the church. Involve people in the things you enjoy. And if you like to play golf, invite another believer to play golf. If you like watching the game, invite believers over to watch the game. If you like to cook, invite believers over to enjoy your cooking and sit together across the table and talk about the things of God and encourage one another. This is life in the church. But this encouragement also comes with a warning. Don't believe the lie that you can live the Christian life on your own, isolated from fellowship with other believers. Isolation from the body of Christ is a recipe for a hardened heart. 
Genuine fellowship around the truth is one of the beautiful means that God uses for the ministry of the word to encourage our hearts. Don't forsake it. Enjoy it. Let me just add one other thing, just as a side note. The closer we live in life together, the more opportunity we will have not only to encourage one another, but to sin against one another. And so, understand that. We are sinners. Our encouragement will not always be well-received, and our encouragement will not always be perfectly done. But that doesn't mean that we shouldn't do it, that we shouldn't be quick to forgive, quick to ask forgiveness, encourage and love one another. Don't allow the, the possibility of offense of getting too close and someone knowing your, your stuff and then you have to really work on it to keep you from pursuing this command and obeying the command to live in close fellowship with one another. This is how we persevere in the faith. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we're so thankful for the word. We're thankful that it's not only full of doctrinal truths that cause our minds to soar with theological realities that cause our minds to sweat because we can't fully comprehend them, but it's also filled with deep practical truth of how that should affect our life. God, help us to be a church at North Lake Bible Church that's committed to living in real fellowship with one another in humble, loving relationships built upon the foundation of the truth of the gospel and of the word of God for the glory of Christ, encouraging one another that we might be built up in the faith. God, help these realities to be true of us. Help us to pursue them, to pursue one another, and use it faithfully, God, to help us be faithful to you until you return or bring us home. For that's our desire. We ask it in the name of Christ. Amen.